Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Michael Thiessen. Hey, how's it going? All right. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. So, Michael, you are our special guest today. Would you mind introducing yourself? Maybe talk about how you got into programming a bit? Sure. So, I am a software developer at a company called Vidyard, where we have an application that helps companies to manage videos. And I do mostly front-end development there, although technically I am a full-stack developer. I got started into programming I think when I was eight or ten years old and it was at a family gathering of some kind I don't know if it was Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that but one of my older cousins who did software development professionally showed me how I could use notepad and I could write some text in notepad and it would become this web page and so he showed me this and from that moment I I was hooked on programming and I gave it up at various points growing up but when I graduated from high school I ultimately decided on going back into programming and so here we are. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype and I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language it's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you, and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. That's awesome. The The concept of using Notepad is very simil- is very familiar to me. My mother actually found a paper that I turned in at one point that was like, when I grow up, I want to be a web designer. It's so easy. You just write it in Notepad and it looks like this. So that's that's really cool that you guys started with the, the same, you know, kind of the basic tooling, right? Just save a file and open it in the browser. Yeah, doesn't get any simpler than that. Yeah, back in the good old days before we had build steps. Well, cool. What got you started with Vue? Yeah, so actually I was using React before I came to work at Vidyard. And so when I joined the company, Vue was the framework of choice. And so I just had to use that. And so I dove in. At first, I absolutely hated using Vue because I came from being really productive and proficient with React. But everything I tried to do in Vue, I had to look up and I had to go through the docs and I had to fight with all these errors. And so I was really frustrated. But eventually, after a few months, at least, of you know working through that and, and figuring out all these things, I actually grew to really love Vue. And so, yeah, I'm really glad that I pushed through that and was able to become comfortable with it. Nice. Obviously, this isn't an episode on React versus Vue, but what, what was one of the, the things that was hard to overcome switching between React to Vue? Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities between the two frameworks, but the idea of reactivity, I think, was hard to wrap my head around. And trying to understand how that's different than this immutable state that React has. And I think just common patterns and common little tact techniques or tactics for, for doing little things here and there. In React, I was, you know, almost like muscle memory for certain things. But in Vue, the syntax was slightly different. Or 
or, you know, was was done in a slightly different way. So it was just kind of like a, a lot of really small things. I think conceptually I understood Vue, but it was just like actually getting it to compile and do what I wanted it to do. That makes sense. I think I ran into the same issue the other direction. I So I, I tried React at first and it didn't click in my head. So I switched to Vue, which did. And then later I was, oh yeah, I should probably learn React. That's it's the most popular choice, just, just so I can understand it at least. And I definitely remember getting used to the the immutability and set state, all of all of those different concepts mm-hmm. was a lot different compared to Vue, where you could just set a variable essentially and move on with life. Yeah. Well, cool. It looks like you, like you said, you you definitely got used to Vue because you've put together a course. And it looks like you're working on another one about how to build components in Vue. Would you mind talking about your course that you've made? Yeah. So at the end of last year, so December 2019, I released a course called Clean Components, and the basic idea of that course is taking a bunch of different things that I've learned over the years working with Vue on how to create components that are easy to work with and easy to maintain, components that don't anger your coworkers when they have to add a new feature or you know fix a bug a couple months after you've built it. Yeah, just just different patterns and and things like that. And yeah, I think I just had I felt like I had a lot to say, and so I wanted to get that all out. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in writing components that don't anger coworkers later down the line. <laughs> I I don't I can't speak for other teams, obviously, but in in my experience, that's one of the more difficult parts. One developer has one mindset: how to put together a component, what makes sense, and then as soon as you bring in the next developer, they'll look at it and be like, "What did you write? What is this supposed to do?" I don't. So I, I can definitely appreciate that idea of writing something in a in a very clean way. That's awesome. And you've got another course coming out that looks like it's titled Reusable Components. What's the difference there compared to the Clean Components course? Yeah, so in my mind, a reusable component is more about being effective and clean components are sort of about being efficient. So a clean component is easy to maintain. You're not wasting your time trying to track down weird bugs or trying to like just understand what is going on in the code. But a reusable component is about getting more done with the same code so that a component can be written once but then used in multiple different ways or that when you're going to add a new feature that you don't have to build all these components from scratch. You can take components that you've already built and hook them up together. And what you're doing is mostly just hooking up different components that you've already built and leveraging all of that previous work versus constantly reinventing the wheel, even if that wheel is nice and clean. Got it. So for example, if I build one modal and it let's assume it's it's a clean component, I shouldn't then build it again. I should be able to reuse the one modal that I've built and use it across multiple uh, use cases. That That's the idea that you're going for there, right? Yeah, that's the idea. Cool. Yeah, I I definitely like that idea. Modal was the example I went with because that's what I do a lot. My in the current code base, the the team I came into had multiple different kinds of dialogues and modals, and I was I was able to introduce this the same idea for reusing components and making them making a standardized modal that we could then insert different data into or use slots or uh, different props to to get different effects. That's really cool. Yeah, and I think I think modals are a pretty common use case because that's that's. I think my go-to example as well for a reusable component, <laughs> that or a button. Right. Last week, we we were talking with the creator of Vue Formulate. And so having having input form be be a reusable component, that, I could see that one also making sense. Yeah. Well, cool. Before we, before we dive in a little bit more to reusable components, which is our topic for the day, on your courses, is this a series where you should do the clean components first and then 
then once the reusable components course is out, do that one? Or are they fairly standalone? They are meant to be standalone. So however you want to do it. Cool. Although I would assume that having a clean component makes it much easier to reuse the component. So there's always that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So yeah, our topic today is reusable components and what makes components reusable. And you put up a blog post that I'd like to talk about called the six levels of reusability. And I think this is this kind of touches what the, the reusable components course is going to be going over. And I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, would you mind going through this a little bit with me? Yeah. So I was thinking about how I use reusability and different patterns and things like that and how I've made components reusable in the past. And I felt that splitting it up into different categories makes it a lot easier to talk about. And even just teaching in a course, it's, it was almost necessary to differentiate somehow between these different things that I wanted to talk about. But I do want to preface by saying that these are not like iron laws. And it's just some some things that I came up with one day. So if you disagree, that's totally fine. <laughs> so there's six different levels. And the first, the first one is just taking your code and wrapping it in a component. So that's like the most, the most basic, the simplest way of reusing code. And the second way is by adding props into the mix. So once you add props, then you can have components that instead of just doing one thing, you can have components that can vary slightly in what they do. And so I call that level configuration because you're basically configuring Configurating, configurating is not a word. Configuring a component to do different things. Okay. So, so just to be clear, templating, let, let's say I was making a button, which is an example used a little bit in this article as well. And templating would be fairly simple. I just have my template tag and then the button. And let's say I wanted to apply a certain style to it. And I use Tailwind, so I put in some Tailwind classes. And then I pass up the events to, to the parent. And that's it. That, that would be templating, right? Yeah. Okay. Basically, very, very straightforward. It's not, you can't use it for a lot of things or reuse it for a lot of different things. Right. Very, very single use since mm -hmm. you're not even passing content in to, to change what text is in the button, for example. It's, it's set. It's an about page, let's say. Right. Okay. And then with configuration, you were passing in some props so we could change the color of the button. We could change the text. We could, some, some very basic information that goes into this component. Sound right? Yeah. And the reason you'd want to do that is that in any application or most applications, for example, with a button, you're not just going to have one type of button. You will probably have a couple different types, probably a lot more than that. And I mean, for the most part, a button, if you're just changing the color, you don't need to have separate components for every single color because all you're changing is that one class, basically. So then you could just use a prop and have that prop change the class within that button component. Okay, so so instead of having red button dot view and blue button dot view, I can just have a single button dot view with a prop of color, let's say, and then I can pass in red or blue. Yeah. Cool. So that's configuration. Yeah. And I think with configuration, I think configuration and the next one are probably two patterns I think that people use the most or what they think about the most when they're thinking about reusable component. Okay. So what is what is the next step towards reusability? So this next level is adaptability. And it's instead of using just props to change how a component works, we're now adding slots into the mix. And so I use the word adaptability 
because with a slot, you can have a component that adapts to future use cases that are not necessarily baked into the component. Okay, so so going back to our button example, we can cha- we can now change the text in a way that doesn't require a prop. Is is one example? Yeah, because props only give you so much flexibility. You can't pass markup in, or yeah, you're limited to like a string and a number and and those types. That makes sense. As an aside, when I was exploring React, that was one of the things that I started to like in React was being able to pass in an entire component as a prop. I got a little used to that and missed it a bit when I was getting into Vue. So getting back into Vue from React. So slots are definitely a good solution for things like that. Yeah. And I think technically you can pass a component as a prop, but it's not the best way of doing things in Vue at least. (laughs) Right. Because we have slots. Right. We have slots. There are other tools to solve this kind of problem. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so so what comes after adaptability? We've we've added a slot so we can change the text on our button. We're passing in props to make it look how we want. What what comes next? So the next level I've called inversion, and this is where we we add in scoped slots. And what we what scope slots let you do is invert the the control of of what's happening in your components. So normally you have a parent that tells the child what to do for the most part. And with scope slots, you get a lot of power by being able to have the child sort of communicate back up to the parent. And so you get like this sort of inversion that makes any sense. (laughs) Yeah, scope slots is always something that I, I, I know how it works when I need to use it, but I still haven't fully wrapped my head around when I can use it myself while writing my own components. So like I've been using Vuetify in one project and I needed to override the data table column with a particular change. So I was able to use scope slots there to to make my adjustment for that one column. But right. I haven't I haven't I haven't found I haven't found the use case where I need to do that in my own my own code base where I have a component that would that would use scope slots to make make changes. Are the, are, is it just that it's not a common thing or am I missing something? I think that, I mean, depending on what code you're writing, it might not be as common. I think it's certainly less common than using slots or, I mean, just using props. I think most components use props in some way, but I think it's also really difficult to wrap your head around how scope slots work. And so that's why I'm focusing this course mostly on these later levels of, of reusability because I, I my sense from what I see out in the community is that like these first few levels are pretty well understood and there's lots of articles and teaching about them. But it's when it comes to scope slots and using scope slots that it gets a lot trickier and there's a lot more nuance to things. And even for myself, I keep realizing or like deepening my understanding of scope slots. And it's yeah, and I've been thinking about them for a long time. And and it might just be that it's it's a newer topic compared to standard props and slots. Since I think it was only introduced in 2.6, which I realize at this point has been some time, but compared to props and slots, those are things that have been around in view for much longer. So maybe there's just been more more time to think about them and ingest them uh, as a community. Yeah, and I think it's also a feature that is unique to view. So like slots are basically how HTML works or any other like XML-based system and props we have in all sorts of frameworks. And so I think it's it's something that just the view community is trying to figure out on its own. 
Yeah, that, that makes sense too. I don't think any of the others do something similar. If anyone's listening and you know of a front-end framework that does something similar to scope slots, I would be very interested to hear about it. So after inversion, it looks like step number five is extension. What's What does that part have to do with? Yeah, so we basically, we take scope slots and we sprinkle them in through our component so that we have a few different places where we can override what's going on. So you can do this with regular slots or scope slots. But in the article, I use this example of a modal. So we can go back to that one of, you know, you might have a header at the top and at the bottom, you have a footer in your modal. And then in the middle is some sort of content that you're going to put into that modal. If you make each of those three things slots that can be overridden or left as is, so you have that those options there, then that gives you a lot more flexibility because you can have a modal where you just add in content. You can have another modal where you're adding in content, but you want that footer to do something completely different. Maybe you put a progress bar in there or something. And so by having a bunch of different spots where you can put these slots in, it just gives you a lot of extra flexibility. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. Yeah, I, I was thinking of the modal example as well as you were describing that. That's that's a primary use case I have for named slots. Another another I could think of is going back to our button. If you wanted to put an icon on the button, you could pass in a scoped slot of icon. I think uh, Vutify does something like, like a prefix icon. And then you're able to just pass in whatever component you want rather than having to pass in the name of the, the icon as a prop. And that way you as the, the developer have full control over which kind of icon you want or what kind of content you want there put other word, other text or images or whatever. It doesn't have to be anything specific. Yeah. And I think like with your icon example, you could have the button built so that by default, you just pass that name of the icon in and the button will figure out how to show that icon. But then as you're saying, if you want extra flexibility and you want to take control over that, over how that icon is rendered, then you just completely override that. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the name slots are really powerful in that regard. You can that's why you called it extension. You can you can really extend a component in any way that you see for different kinds of use cases, make them so even though a lot of the code is being reused, certain sections are customized for your particular use case. And I think that's that's excellent. Yeah, and it's if you've ever worked with object oriented languages or anything like that, it's similar to subclassing where you can have this base class that defines a bunch of methods and then you can have a subclass that will optionally override some methods and other methods it won't and it will just default to whatever is in the base class so it's a it's it's kind of like inheritance in that way but for components mm -hmm. that's a that's a really good way to look at it because it is inheriting all of that functionality and a good chunk of the template. You're just overriding that one part for your subclass. I like that. Cool. So what is the sixth level of reusability? So the last level here is nesting. So where you take this idea of extension, but like we would with an object-oriented language where you can have like A subclasses from B, which subclasses from C, and it's sort of like this chain, this hierarchy of classes with components, you can do a similar thing. And this is something that I've actually used quite a bit. So it's 
not like this theoretical idea, which I think to some people it might because it seems kind of crazy and admittedly it does. And it is because it is such like a powerful way of abstracting. It also is fairly dangerous. And I think you can get a little carried away sometimes. So uh, yeah, I, I would say with this one, probably most people won't need it that often. I've used it, but only like three or four times maybe. But when I have used it, it's been really valuable. So I'm just trying to make sure I understand. It's This is looking at it from the React perspective, this is kind of like a higher order function, right? Where where you have some sort of change that needs to be made to a component or some sort of wrapper that needs to go around it and happen first, for example, before it renders. Is that the right way to think about this? Yeah, I think that's definitely a good way of thinking about it as like you're, you're adding, you're wrapping this component and every time you add a new wrapper, you can add new things to it or add more specific functionality to it. Okay. So so in many ways, this is kind of like using mix-ins, but focusing a bit more on the template level of the component instead of in just the uh, the script part. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that, that sounds about right. Okay. I have to think more on that one. But yeah, I think that's yeah. that's probably true. Because with a with a mixin, you could you could have all these different pieces of functionality. Let's say you had a mixin to fetch a particular set of data. You had another mixin to uh, just track the user's uh, activity on the page, and then you could bring both of those mixins in to one component, and all of the functionality is there. But with a with the nesting idea, you'd have one component that's purely it's got its own tag, but then it just has a slot really to to let a child in, and then it tracks all of the user accessibility. So. I, I could see it going both ways. I know in, in the application I'm working mm-hmm. on at work, we actually have something like this. I, I actually named it a higher order component for for lack of a better name, where it, it goes and it makes sure that all of the data is present in the in the application before a particular set of views are rendered. So we call that the loading HOC. Right. And that, and that's why I, where I drew that comparison between between a higher order component or nesting compared to mixin, because I keep looking at it and thinking, could I could I move this into a mixin? Should I move this into a mixin? Would it make mm. more sense? But it, I I always come back. It feels more comfortable where it is, where I am I am literally taking it this particular view and then just wrapping it. Yeah, and I think I think there might be a distinction there between this idea of, of nesting and wrapping or higher order components. So at least at least the way that I I think about it, and you I don't know you may you can disagree with me on this one and, and say that nesting and higher order components are really the same thing. I'm fine with that. But the way that I've thought about it is to, if we have this modal component at the very top of your hierarchy or bottom, I, I guess, you have a base modal. And then building on top of that base modal, you might have a confirmation dialogue that gives like a yes or no option into the footer of that modal. And then building on that one, you would have a delete confirmation. And so these things sort of, the functionality is not the functionality that each of these wrappers adds isn't completely independent. It's more so that it's getting more specific as you move up. And so from that confirmation dialogue, you can also add a create user confirmation and other types of confirmations that you might want. But then you're going to want more than just confirmation dialogues. And so then when you want a completely different type of dialogue, you can go all the way back down to that base modal and then build off of that in a different direction. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you that then the idea I was saying is different from nesting. I think the way it at least clicked in my head is in in nesting, you start out with something basic and then you build up. Whereas with the the higher order idea, you start with something basic and then you build down. Okay. So in, in my example where I had a loading higher order component, it fires
years first before any children can do anything. Whereas in nesting, you're actually working with the higher, the, the thing that's built up in general. So you're working with the confirmation modal, which is built on top of a modal. Yeah, that makes so. a lot of sense. Maybe there should be a seventh level <laughs> in, there, in there. You heard it here first. We found the seventh <laughs> level of reusability. Well, cool. So that all made a lot of sense. I, I'm glad. I think I'm... <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going to explore this a little bit more, especially the, the scope the scope slots and how we can get some of that inversion, because maybe that would solve some of the other issues I've been thinking about in regards to reusability. It hasn't clicked yet. Obviously, I will need to sign up and find out when your course is out. So we've gone over these different levels of reusability. Maybe it's important also to understand when we should actually be thinking about doing this, because not every component is going to have something that's reusable across your application. In, in the application I'm working on right now, for example, we currently have three or four different types of table. And every time we stare at that, we're like, there should really just be one table we just use everywhere. But the use cases are so different for, for each of those tables that we just haven't been able to standardize around anything. So in your view, looking at reusable components, when should you start looking at abstracting away and making a base modal or a base table or a base button? What's what's a good time to start doing that? Well, if you are like me, then probably later than you want to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, I really enjoy building abstractions and trying to think about, you know, what's this like, like amazing, what's the one data table component that will, you know, be it and then we're done and then we can just move on. But there never is going to be that component. Um, and so, I don't know, I've come across this this one idea called the rule of three, which I think is a pretty good heuristic where once you've done something at least three times, then you can take a look and see if it makes sense to make that into a single component. Okay, so go, going to the table, for example, I've got one table that serves one function and we've made it and it's wonderful. And then we have to make another part of the application that has a second table and we've made it and it's wonderful. And then we're working on our third one and we've made it. And it's, it's starting to feel really similar with the other two, but there's these differences. And that you're, with, with this rule of three, we'd start being able to put together whether or not we should abstract a single table at that point. Not necessarily do it, but you can actually start thinking about it at that point. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, because when you're at the very beginning, you don't even know if you're going to use that many tables in your application. But once you hit two or three, then you're probably going to use it more. That's a pretty safe assumption. And if you've only built something one time, you also don't even know what you're supposed to be building. And I think that's the bigger problem is that by waiting until you have three times that you've done this, you can start to see what works and also the requirements and like the true requirements, not just these fantasies that you have about what it should be. Right. A fantasy requirement like this data table needs to be able to support 500,000 entries and do lazy loading to make sure it doesn't break the DOM. But that's never actually going to come up in your application because you only ever render 10 things at a time. Yeah, exactly. But it's really fun to try and make a highly performing data table that uses virtualization or some other sort of nifty thing that you just read about. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that draw of building things that, that seem like they would be, be a, a clean and cool implementation when in reality, I'm never going to use it anyway. Well, cool. On the topic of component reusability, is there anything else that you would like to dive into? Any any point we haven't touched yet? No, I don't think there's anything really that, that sticks out. I think we've covered quite a bit so far. Okay. I have one last question before we before we start wrapping up. We we touched at the beginning of the, the article on props. And I don't know about you or those who are listening, but occasionally I will stumble upon a component or I will write a component by mistake that has far, far, far too many props. And we 
we actually have a few a few uh, components in my current application where we abstracted the props out of the single file component into their own file because it was too long. It, we were trying to keep the file readable and to go between the template and the code, you had to scroll through lines upon lines of props. So do you have any words of wisdom for, for building a good prop interface into components? Some some kind of heuristic that you use when you're when you're putting together these kinds of I guess APIs really. Yeah, so I mean I think it's good to recognize that sometimes at the end of the day you just have code that's complex because the requirements themselves are complex and as far as you can simplify it. And I think lots of times we get into trouble by trying to oversimplify things. I think I've I've definitely done that. So I just wanted to put that out there that sometimes that's that's just life. <laughs> but one of the things I try and do is really really think and put a lot of energy into making things simple and thinking about thinking a lot about how someone will be using this component in the future. And I think that's a very different way of thinking about components because normally when we're writing code we're working in the component and so we're thinking about the implementation and you know, this file is too long and, and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes thinking about how people are going to use that component once it's built, especially if it's going to be reusable, then I think that's, it opens up different ways of thinking about the component that maybe you might get some some other insights about how to simplify it that you wouldn't by just looking at the technical side of things or like the implementation side of things. Okay, so trying to think about how the component fits into the application as a whole rather than trying to jam as much functionality into it as you want, for example. Yeah. Okay. I, I thought of another question too. Do you make any any sort of differentiation between a component that is very specific, but reused across your application and a component that is generic and used in multiple places across your application? So for for example, I have in our application, we have a particular card that it's, it's one of those that has way too many props that we use it in multiple places across the application to, to serve up data in a particular particular format. And it's it's very specific and it can only be used in this one way, but it's used across everything. Do you, as you're looking at your reusable components methodologies, do you differentiate between something like that that's very specific compared to something that is very generic? So I don't think that I have have thought about it in in that way exactly, but I would guess that a component that's used in a more specific way is probably like in level one or two in this these different levels, and something that's a lot more generic would probably be higher up on those levels. But I don't know if that's like a hard and fast rule. Mm. But that I don't know. Just off the top of my head, that's probably what I would think. It's funny. As you said that, it just clicked in my head. It's like, oh, this is how to make the very specific thing more generic, reduce the props, move it across, have these nested components. So I've got a whole plan now and I'm excited to get back to work. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, coming to talk to us today, Michael. No problem. Glad I could be here. Yeah. Before we wrap up, where can people find your Clean Components course and the Reusable Components course when that one is available? So you can find my course if you Google Clean Components. It's the, the first result there. And along with that, you'll end up on my website where I have a lot of different articles about Vue and exploring Vue in different ways, sometimes productive ways and sometimes just ways that are interesting. 
I, I happen to notice that your your website is using Gridsome, which I completely approve of uh, as another Gridsome developer. Yeah, I actually have been really enjoying using Gridsome and I'm excited for when they're able to upgrade to View 3 so that I can dive into that on my own site. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a good time. Awesome. So we'll make sure there are links in the show notes to both your website and the courses as well. And where can people find you if they have any questions about what we've been talking about? Are you on social media at all that people can reach out to you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Michael Thiessen and feel free to find me there. And uh, yeah, ask me any questions you have. Great. And we will make sure to include a, a link to that as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So at this point, we'll go into picks. For those who aren't aware, picks are the part of the show where we share things that we like. Uh, it doesn't have to be tech-related. Uh, we just want to share them with you. So Michael, you've been talking this whole time, so I will go first. And then if you have a pick, I'll let you go. My pick today... So I figure this is actually fairly funny because it's 2020. But for, for 2020, I had planned to actually do some journaling and, and try and organize my mind, my life, because... I am one of those people that will commit to a bunch of things and then completely forget about them because I didn't write it down. And no matter how much I try using the Google Assistant or taking notes on a computer or putting it in my calendar and waiting for reminders, nothing worked. It just it just wasn't clicking in my head. So I started doing bullet journaling at the beginning of this year, which worked great up until everything shut down and we went home and time became irrelevant. But I've, I've, I've started up again in the last week or so, and it's been going great. The, the piece that I've been enjoying the last few days that I'm sharing today is it's an article called the day that talks about a daily plan bar. So for those who don't know, bullet journaling is basically just bullet points about your day with certain annotations so that you know what's going on. But I wanted a more visual representation of what my schedule for the day was. So I started using this daily plan bar to just note down what's going on on any given day. So I will share that in the show notes if that is something that you also struggle with and would like an idea about. Michael, do you have a pick for us today? So we've been getting, since the, the pandemic started, we've been getting this produce box every week. And that's actually been really awesome. And I've heard about these before, but never actually committed to anything before. So basically, there's this local farm in our area. And once a week, they come by and they drop off fresh fruit and vegetables from their farm. And some times from other farms and they collaborate and we end up with like really amazing and really fresh stuff and we don't have to go to the grocery store as much and yeah it's just it's pretty great to have really tasty fruit dropped off at your doorstep i bet that sounds awesome keep meaning to try out things like that and again I, I just forget to write it down i am jealous of the fresh fruit that you are getting delivered to your house well awesome thank you again michael it's been a pleasure thanks for having me yeah hope you enjoyed this episode everyone if you would like to reach out to us we are at Views on View, viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can reach out to me personally at Yagabush on Twitter. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.